0: Trevor Bauer signed. Andrew Benintendi got traded for Franchi Cordero. Whatever can it all mean? I'll ask our Market Watch news reporters about all of it next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 12th. It's show number four of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday News and Notes edition for you. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports, Harold Nichols with coverage of the National League, including Trevor Bauer. Pedro Marte, Marcel Ozuna, and more. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Andrew Benintendi, Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, the Detroit Bullpen, and more. We'll have our HQ Spotlight with Brent Hershey, co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com, discussing his work at the site, including on the minor league scouting team at HQ and more. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analyst at baseballhq.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the minor league minute, Baseball HQ minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon looks at Pittsburgh third baseman Cabrian Hayes. And in the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Tampa left handed starter Josh Fleming. It's another big news and notes edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? pitchers and catchers report next week. We gotta talk some baseball. Well, the teams have set their spring training dates and pitchers and catchers will start reporting next week. For most teams, it's Wednesday or Thursday. The Mets and twins lagging behind arriving on Friday. But can it be true? We're a week away from spring training. Fingers crossed that everything works out. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, it's our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report. And leading us off, it's our National League news and analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back. Thank you, Patrick. The big news in the National League, Trevor Bauer signed a three-year contract with the Dodgers. I think he did it five minutes after we stopped uh, talking last Friday, but we need to talk about it this Friday. Uh, $102 million bucks for three years, but he can opt out after year one or year two, so that's pretty good for him if he has a terrific year. Uh, Jock Thompson covered the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, moving to the Dodgers, of all the places he could have landed, seems like really good news for Bauer and his fantasy managers.
2: Well, certainly Bauer lands on baseball's best team. So you get plenty of run support, plenty of bullpen support, plenty of defensive support. Uh, and Dodger Stadium is a better home venue than Great American Ballpark. So uh, all positive news on that front.
0: Where there's good, there's usually bad. What's the bad news here?
2: Well, the bad news is uh, is really the Dodgers are very deep in starting pitching, and that could cut into his innings to keep him fresh for the playoffs. Uh, we know they have a habit of doing that and putting guys on the IL and resting them for, for 10 days. So... That, that could cut into innings somewhat for Bauer, but still likely to lead the Dodgers in, in innings pitched.
0: Yeah, and I would suggest, Nick, that he's probably going to be among the league leaders in innings pitched. And remember in the off season, he made a lot of noise about how he wanted to pitch every fourth day rather than every fifth. He wanted to go full season on three days rest. Did we get any updates on whether the Dodgers are amenable to that sort of uh, thinking?
2: I haven't seen anything on that. I I can't imagine as deep as the Dodger rotation is. I can't imagine them trying that. But we'll wait and see.
0: Yeah, I just wondered if maybe he'd force the matter by saying, "If if you want to sign me, here's the deal," you know. And I wonder if maybe that they'd be willing to split the difference and give him some some starts on three days rest, some starts on four days rest, that kind of thing. I was talking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago with one of my guests. I can't remember who it was, but the we wondered if. Maybe the Dodgers who want to ma- manage the workloads of, of their pitchers, maybe they look at Trevor Bauer as an opportunity, well, we can skip this guy's start by putting Bauer in on three days rest and give the other guy an extra day of rest or skip his start entirely and still pretty much stay on schedule for everybody in the rotation to go on four days' rest, except him when, he, when they want to get uh, when they want to try to get somebody a little extra day, as I said.
2: Right. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. We know that Clayton Kershaw has, uh, has uh, injury issues every once in a while and see, they've got some younger guys available who, uh, who may need some rest. So certainly it would be interesting to see what they do and how they manage that entire situation.
0: Boy, uh, it was Gene McCaffrey I was talking to in the first show of the season who said that if Trevor Bauer or any decent starter was to go on three days rest throughout the season, he would immediately become the top starter in fantasy baseball because of the innings volume. Yeah, the innings volume
2: would certainly be uh, be amazing in that in that situation. So uh, uh, the question is, could he could could that starter maintain uh, effectiveness all the way into September, and and uh, with the Dodgers thinking into the playoffs with that going on, or would they in September go to something else and say, all right, we've got this cinch now, so we're going to shut him down for three weeks and uh, and let him pitch out of the bullpen or something. it would be interesting to see how they develop, how they handle all of this.
0: It will be because it it augurs for the future of how rotations are, are managed in general. And one of the things that has been clear over the years is, I think we can all agree is that pitchers start too young, uh, throwing all kinds of pitches like heavy, heavy workloads, even in high school and junior high school, especially in colleges, the universities, there are horror stories about pitchers being left out. There are 180 pitches, 190 pitches, this kind of thing. And the, the physiological fact is young men are uh, young people in general are not fully physically developed till they're about 24 or 25 and that they really should be ramping up those innings through that, through that, uh, part of their life as they're young, learning good mechanics, learning about the sequencing of pitching, that kind of thing and not going out there and throwing 300 pitches a week in, you know, weekend tournaments and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, it's very clear that that. That sort of thing happens, and that's why I think we see so many uh, so many injuries to pitchers early in their career, which we've seen a lot lately.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. Of course, it's in the team's interest. They sign the, the young pitcher, uh, draft him out of university. They want to get him to the big leagues and contributing because they're paying a lot of money for his services. And from their point of view, if he has an arm injury at age 25 – By that time, his contract is over. He may be long gone or, you know, that's not their concern. They're looking at, you know, those age 22, 23, 24, or 23, 24, 25 years, because those are the years they have him under contract. And after that, if he gets hurt, that's his problem.
2: Right. That's, That's entirely possible.
0: Now, if Trevor Bauer does get a lot of innings, however many they turn out to be, it seems like there's going to be some bad news here for the pitchers who are... At the end of the Dodgers rotation, you mentioned Kershaw. His innings seem safe, but there are some pitchers who were kind of three, four, five who now become four, five, six. Right, very
2: definitely. And uh, the domino effect ripples right through the entire uh, LA starting pitching group. Uh, biggest innings casualties are likely to be Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin, and maybe even Julio Horace, depending uh, on uh, if or how often the Dodgers go with a six man rotation. But uh, both. Uh, Both Dustin May and Gonsolin will pitch meaningful 2021 innings in some capacity. And, of course, injuries and the fact that uh, L.A. uses that IL for timeouts uh, will factor in here. But without veteran injuries, one of the three, either May or Gonsolin most likely, uh, could find a big in 2021 in the minors. And, of course, uh, more trades are still possible.
0: Yes, uh, the Dodgers are in a good position to trade from strength in pitching and everybody's always looking for it. Although, I, you look through that Dodgers lineup and you think, where can they where can they improve? You know, I mean, I suppose they could have signed Nolan Arenado at some point for a couple of pitchers, but they didn't and it's hard to imagine them getting much better. In Atlanta, they tried to get a little better Nick by re-signing outfielder Marcel Ozuna. Phil Hertz covered the story for playing time today. And you mentioned domino effects in the LA starting rotation. What are the domino effects in the outfield in Atlanta?
2: Well, you know, Ozuna returns to Atlanta where he just battered major league pitching in 2020. Career highs in average at 338, uh, expected batting average at 283, hard contact index 138, OPS 1.067, a power index 166. Uh, some, we expect some regression, but uh, even with a likely regression, he's one of the best power sources out there. They needed another big bat uh, and one who can at least play a passable outfield, and so they certainly got that uh, with, with Ozuna.
0: Those numbers sounded impressive to me, Nick, but uh, are, are you at all concerned about the 55-point difference between a uh, 283 expected batting average and a three thirty-eight real batting average?
2: To expect some regression for Ozuna. On the other hand, Risa, he seems to like playing in Fulton County Stadium. Uh, Atlanta seemed to be a good place for him. So, uh, I, you know, I, that that's it was good for him, I think, to re-sign in Atlanta, where he was so successful a year ago.
0: Had they not signed Ozuna, Atlanta's starting outfield, Nick, would probably have been Ronald Acuna, Ender Inciarte, and Christian Pache. Who's out?
2: It's long-term, it's likely that Inciarte would be the one relegated to the bench. Um, from 2015 through 2018, Inciarte averaged over $20 in 5x5 value, but struggled a bit in 2019 and struggled a lot in 2020, uh, 215 expected batting average, only a 260 t- uh, 262 on base average. So ultimately, we expect Pache will take over as Atlanta's center fielder, uh, the team's number two prospect with an 8A rating, uh, but he's played only 28 regular season games above AA, uh, 26 with A Gwinnett in 2019 and two with Atlanta in 2020. And while he also played in 12 games in the 2020 postseason, it wouldn't be a surprise to see him start the minors in 2021 uh, and then and come up after a month or so. Uh, Pache has proven to be an elite defender, but his bat could be a bit behind the glove. Uh, 2019 was his best minor league season offensively, splitting the season between A AA and AAA. He batted 277, 12 homers, 12 homers, 487 at bats. He added eight steals, but was caught stealing 11 times. So... Uh, that that uh, does uh, encourage someone to, to get the green light. Uh, two things to consider with regard to the Atlanta outfield, Ozuna mostly DH'd for Atlanta in 2020, and he might return to that spot if the universal DH is readopted. Uh, and also, there are a couple of weeks of the season left before position players report, and it wouldn't be a surprise to see Atlanta acquire an additional outfielder
0: in that time. Yeah, that would be interesting, all right. And if it does, I think it's curtains for Pache because uh, – he, he looks like he's the guy in the bubble now. And if they add another outfielder, I think his goose is cooked, at least uh, for the foreseeable future. Nick, uh, Kettle Marte has been one of the best fantasy second basemen in the National League. But uh, in the market pulse, Matt Sederholm, looking at all the second basemen that w- might be drafted this year, thinks maybe his current ADP is too high. What's uh, Matt Sederholm's take on Kettle Marte?
2: Well, you know, certainly there's it's no question that Kelamarte Marte is one of the best second basemen in the National League. Uh, current ADP is 76. Uh, baseball HQ would have him ranked number 102. So a bit of a difference there. A couple of rounds, perhaps, in terms of uh, drafting, depending upon how many, how many uh, teams are in your league. Uh, his 2019 breakout was very impressive. But if you look back at it, in retrospect, it looks like a couple of great months, followed by a return to, to his normal form. And the best way to see that uh, is to look at his expected power index over the past six half seasons, beginning in the second half of 2017, which is the first half season where he was in Major League Baseball the entire time. Uh, So here here are the PX expected power index numbers. 78, 81, 89, 124, then 83 and 80. Certainly a small sample, but also a pretty consistent trend aside from that 124 expected power index in the first half of 2019. So while his contact rate is trended up, uh, there's a chance he'll hit 300 at some point. Anything more than 20 home runs is a bit of a reach, isn't it? Uh, and steals. Uh, sure, he has good speed, but he's running at about the same pace as the rest of the team, which is also right around the major league uh, average. So he wouldn't counter more than 10 stolen bases either. So profile is very similar to Jose Altuve uh 2020 Emerald elf too maybe not the younger version uh but he's going about a round and a half earlier uh and so you might prefer to wait a bit instead of drafting Marte that early.
0: Yeah that seems like pretty sound advice. Uh the the big gap that concerns me is between the uh, 75 ADP sort of end of the fifth round roughly but our projection says at least two rounds later, you know uh that, that's a pretty big reach, uh, it seems to me. It, it might make sense in the context of your draft at that point. You need a second baseman. He's the best one left. Maybe you reach. I don't know. But uh, I'm with Matt Cedarholm on this one. I think I'd prefer to wait and see what, uh, what shakes up a little later on. Um, in playing time tomorrow, our analysts look at uh, divisions. They look at whole team rosters by division. Uh, Alain Leonardis covers the National League East and he wrote about the Phillies' bullpen and how does their closer situation shake out.
2: Well, you know, the Phillies' bullpen was uh, was actually horrifying last year, dead last with a 7.06 ERA, and so they've added some guys. Hector Neris has the inside track on the closer gig, still, uh, a year after losing it and then regaining it, uh, and then struggling while he struggled through one of his worst seasons in Major League Baseball. 4.57 ERA, 1.71 whip, Ah, uh, were really bad, but he did suffer from a very ungodly 41% hit rate. Uh, and in spite of that, his xre was 4.61, due in large part to a 13% uh, walk rate and a diminished uh, a diminished 26% strike rate. Uh, he got a lot of whiffs, 17.8 swinging strike rate. So it looks like he's underachieved his uh, his uh, strike rate by a fair amount. And looking at the pitch mix, he threw far fewer splitters than previously. Uh, Putaways for a splitter didn't change much, uh, 24.1% to 27.1%. Uh, but what happened was uh, putaways plummeted for his four seamer, which dropped uh, from 28.8% to 18.6%. So Naris may be the presumed closer, still far from a sure thing. Uh, our biggest concern is if 2020's uh, BPV free fall uh, dropped down to, 20, to 76 BPV in 2020, if he can redeem the form he showed in 2019 when uh, his BPB was 150, uh, he should be fine. But if not, they've got two more guys to look at. Archie Bradley, recently signed as a free agent, giving the Phils another capable arm to close out games or late innings. He's put a closer-worthy BPB in three of the last four seasons, 131, 129, 98, 136. Has some experience closing out games. But uh, a lot of that skill score is derived for his better-than-average walk-and-ground ball rates rather than his ability to to miss bats. A pedestrian, a 9.4% swinging strike rate in 2020. And he also lost a ticket-a-half in 2020, uh, adding a bit of concern to his health. Uh, while he certainly could fill in his closure, it'll take an injury or an implosion by Neris before he racks up very many saves.
0: Jose Alvarado came over to Philly from... Uh, Tampa, where he was actually a pretty effective pitcher. He's posted some nice BPV scores. What is Jose Alvarado as a left-hander? How does he fit into the mix?
2: Yeah, he did post some nice scores in 2017 and 2018, 117, 125, and then injuries uh, took a serious bite out of his skills. Uh, Oblique injury, shoulder injury, uh, spent 120 days on the I.L. over the past three seasons, uh, and only managed to throw nine innings in 2020. With a fastball that dropped from 98.2 to 96.9 in velocity, uh, he's only 26 years old. If healthy, he'll be a late inning option. Uh, but the, the fact that he's a lefty, uh, he goes in with a lower chance at saves than the than either Bradley or Naris.
0: Yeah, that does seem like the case. Uh, you have the left-hander situation. Uh, Unless the last three or the last two good hitters in a game in a safe situation are lefties that he can go out and, and be a situational sort of reliever in that in that space, that might be a source of saves, but otherwise I wouldn't count on it too much. Uh, finally, uh, we've talked about Ryan Bloomfield's upside list for batters, which he came out with a couple of weeks ago. Well, more recently, he's come out with an upside list for pitchers. And one of the interesting bits of coverage in that article were new rotation members in San Diego all on the upside list. How does moving to San Diego affect these guys' projections?
2: Now Blake Snell and Joe Musgrove uh, were, were on the upside list, and uh, adding them in San Diego and adding new Darvish, to puts their rotation among the best in the game. We said that Snell's upside was a top-10 starting pitcher, if healthy. Uh, but the rub with, with uh, Snell has been a D health grade. Reflects some elbow-shoulder problems 2018 and nineteen. Uh, but certainly plenty of raw talent. Uh, he's one of five pitchers with a greater than 14% swinging strike rate and a greater than 11.0 dom in each of the last two seasons. The other guys are Scherzer, Cole, DeGrom, and Giolito. So more importantly, he may be given a shot to stretch out and face a lineup a third time through the order with San Diego. So uh, that was, he wasn't allowed to do that in Tampa. Uh, if you're willing to embrace some injury risk, he could pay major dividends in his new home. But, you know, I have a question about that. Let's, uh, and if they stretch him out and let him go through the lineup three times, how does that affect him later in the season as we get into August and September? He'll be throwing more innings, uh, possibility of more injuries. Uh, Tampa manages his innings very effectively. I have some questions and concerns about what happens if he starts throwing a lot more innings.
0: Yeah, it seems that way. And and for his career, his performance in those extra times through the order has been pretty uh, questionable. First time through, I think his uh, um, ERAs and and his ERA indicators have been pretty bad. Uh, I'm just looking at his XFIP uh, through the order, first time 317, second time 394, third time through 441. So it looks like things are going the wrong way for him. The fourth time through it's very few innings, so it really doesn't matter. But a uh, I think that's something to be concerned about if you're planning to add Blake Snell to a fantasy roster or if you have him on a fantasy roster already because if they're going to try to force the issue, it could be the source of some blowups, not to mention the added injury risk that you mentioned. I think we have to give Tampa a
2: lot of credit in the way they manage their pitchers. It's frustrating sometimes for uh, for a fantasy leaguer that these guys that, that we think are really good, and they are, are not getting as many innings pitched as we'd like to see them or they're starting in the second inning. Therefore, if your league counts the person as a starting pitcher and they come in in inning number two, they don't count as a starting pitcher that week. Uh, so it can get frustrating from a fantasy point of view, but they've been very effective managing their, managing their pitchers. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens with Snell when he gets in a situation where he's likely to be, to be less managed
0: how about something like this if you're San Diego and you're looking at a guy who struggles after he reaches a certain pitch count or through the order however you want to phrase it it works out to the same thing he faces a certain number of batters starts to run into trouble uh, why not let him pitch every fourth day like Trevor Bauer wants to but limit him to two times through the order each time
2: that's certainly that's certainly a possibility it would be uh, if I were if I were doing it I would think yep that's a uh, that's definitely worth a shot
0: yeah, take a look at it. I mean, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but it certainly seems to make more sense than uh, to force the issue by saying you're going to go th- a third time through the order when historically everything about your entire performance says it's not a good idea. I mentioned the XFIT, but uh, listen to his strikeout rates, 12.2, 9.5, 8.4. Walk rates, 3.5, 4, 4.1. Strikeout to walks, three and a half, two and a half, two everything about it is a bad idea.
2: Right. Very definitely. It does look like that, doesn't it?
0: It does indeed. Uh, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out again this week. uh, We'll talk to you again in seven days' time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn over to the American League and Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show.
3: Good to be here, Patrick. Finally getting some news moving here.
0: Did we ever, on Wednesday night, a somewhat significant trade? The Boston Red Sox somewhat surprisingly sent Andrew Benintendi to Kansas City in a three-team trade that also included the Mets. So Andrew Benintendi, the final member of the outfield trio that helped Boston win the 2018 World Series, is gone. Of course, he wasn't playing that well the last little while. Uh, What are the details of the trade? Yeah, this was a
3: little murky to untangle last night as the news was breaking in dribs and drabs, but the w- the way it breaks down seems to be that Benettendi goes to Kansas City, as you said, and in terms of the Royals, the- Franchi Cordero went back to the Red Sox, so it- it's kind of a net zero in the outfield for the Royals. You know, they've got Merrifield and Benintendi sort of entrenched now, and then the third spot is Michael Taylor, Edward Olivares, it seems, I think the open question there is how often they're going to pull Merrifield back from center field to knock the light hitting Nicky Lopez off a of second base. So we'll have to sort of wait and see about that, but that's the, that's the cast of characters. They've got, you know, at least four guys for the three spots in that outfield right now.
0: I had uh Ben and Tandy penciled in to hit probably six behind Jorge, Jorge Soler, and not a terrible, um, top of the order for Andrew Benintendi to hit behind. Uh, Does this actually benefit Benintendi moving to the Royals? Because he was pretty much hitting sixth for Boston most of the time, too.
3: You know, it's interesting. I was wondering about that, too. And like you said, Benintendi basically didn't play in 2020. He had 30-something terrible at bats and missed the rest of the season. And he was not very good in 2019 either. So you have to go back to 2018 when he was... A, a really a, a plus player, and he was very good in 2018. So I think the first question, if you want to talk about where he hits in the lineup, is which Andrew Benintendi are we getting? You know, And the, I was coming at it from a slightly different perspective. I think for a default or a starting point, I think somewhere around sixth is about right. But if he shows that he gets back to that 2018 form, he could jump up to one or two with Merrifield pretty quickly. And in that case, I think the loser would be and Alberto Mondesi in his sub-300 OBP, who would fall back down to the nine spot. So from a you know fantasy productivity point of view, that's that's one angle I'm watching, but I I, I think you've got the right first step. I don't think Benintendi's missing 2020 and his recent track record merits uh, an immediate drop at the top of the lineup until he shows that he's solved some of those problems.
0: And meanwhile, uh, Franchi Cordero moves to Boston. Where does he fit in there? The first question with Franchi is... How healthy is he going to be for how
3: long? You know, our friend Jock Thompson tweeted the other night that he was excited about Franchi and getting to Boston and the park factor improvements that come with that. And I I countered with, yeah, I'm excited, too, until his first date with the center field wall, uh, which is probably <laughs> not far away. Um, but, you know, one thing you could see the Red Sox trying to do here that, you know, where Franchi fits very nicely is. They didn't really have a true center fielder, as you said, with Jackie Bradley, you know, still unsigned, but probably not coming back to Boston. They were going to masquerade Verdugo in center, I think. And this gives them the flexibility to kind of put their best defensive outfield out, which is likely going to be Franchi in center, Verdugo in right, and Hunter Renfro in left. Um, there's still room to add something to that, or maybe you get a little. Kiki Hernandez, who we talked about last week swinging out to the outfield or a little J.D. Martinez or a little Michael Chavez. There are there are guys who can, you know, fake a Fenway left field at least. But, um, you know, Franchi, you know, as long as he is healthy instantly, at least becomes their best defensive center fielder. So you would think he's going to get some time there.
0: And just before we leave this trade, uh, the Royals give up on outfield prospect Khalil Lee, uh, they sent him over to the Mets as part of this roundabout deal. Uh, Boston also got, I think, a, a minor league right-hander from the Mets as part of this carousel, but, uh, is Khalil Lee somebody that there's going onto the scrap heap here or what, what's the story there? I, I don't know enough
3: about him to say, I know that
0: we have to pay attention to him
3: for fantasy purposes because. He apparently runs like the wind, so those guys always get our attention. Um, you know, the Mets are obviously not in a place to be giving prospects a lot of rope at this point. They've got, you know, they've got contending aspirations that are throwing big money at problems. So I'm not totally sure how he fits in there, but you know, it's one of those cases where you know, he ends up on our watch list of, you know, potential speed assets anytime the at-bats find him. So instead of having him on our watch list on my American League list, now he goes on my National League list.
0: In another trade, Ray, earlier in the week, Oakland traded DH Chris Davis along with catcher Jonah Heim and minor league pitcher Dane Acker to Texas. The A's get back shortstop Elvis Andrews. Uh, Rod Trusdell covered this for playing time today. And my first question is, I had Willie Calhoun written in ink into the DH slot so where does Chris Davis fit in in Texas yeah
3: Davis my first take on this was that Davis was literally just a salary offset for Andrews in this deal and this was about getting Andrews out of Texas to a place where they needed a shortstop Oakland and you know one or two other teams were sort of the last team left holding the bag in a game of musical shortstops where all the free agents had signed and Oakland hadn't found one. So they went out and got Andrews and Davis to me just looked like a, a balance sheet part of this equation. Uh, the, you know, There was some initial speculation that he was going to get DFA'd by Texas as soon as he got there. That seems to not be the case, but uh, unless Chris Davis shows up in Texas camp in March and looks more like the 2017, 2018 Chris Davis, I don't think he's going to be a threat to many of bats disappearing from Willie Calhoun.
0: Yeah, he could help if he gets that form back, but it's been a while. 2019, he was terrible. 2020, he was terrible. Uh, I think that uh, Rod Trusdell reported that his home run per fly ball rate was only 8% in 2020. That's an indication that there's something going on with bad speed. He's 33 years old. He's been around for a while. It's not terribly old for a power hitting DH but he just hasn't been getting the job done. Meanwhile, Rod Truesdell says a big part of the trade for Texas wasn't Davis at all, as you suggest, just a throw-in for salary-wise, but they are pretty happy to get young catcher Jonah Heim.
3: Yeah, they're obviously in a in a bit of a youth movement. There, we've seen that. What with you know pushing Andrews sort of out of the out of the roadmap and you know some other you know Cinchuchu moving on. You know they're they're turning the page in Texas and uh, like you said, Trevino was going to start the season as the catcher of the of of the present and certainly he seems like he's got some uh, future value and will be cheap and cost controlled for a number of years to come. But uh, but uh, he looks more like a you know sort of a do no harm average first. You know, not too much power kind of catcher. Where Haim, you know, has a little more offensive upside. You know, there's a chance that that's a, uh, you know, an an actual offense first catcher that. Uh, you know, in, in time could be a more of an asset than Trevino there. So that, that that's a watch this space. Uh, you know, the other, the other thing about this that, you know, bears reminding everybody is it used to be as recently as two years ago, there would have been some significant park effect changes here. Like even if Davis is was washed up, we'd be worried about, we'd be excited about him moving from cavernous Oakland to the launch pad in Texas. And we'd be talking about how, how this kills Elvis Andrews moving from, you know moving in the other direction but you know reminder that you know at least in a short season the new texas ballpark played very much like a pitcher's park so this is uh this this is pretty neutral in terms of park effects for all these
0: guys and i suppose somebody has to play shortstop in texas uh i'm looking at isaiah kinder falafel is that what we think is going to happen
3: yeah it seems like it i was a little surprised at that you know he's you know, we've known him in fantasy circles as a catcher or at least a catcher eligible for a long time. And, you know, they, he came out and played some third base last year. And now they're talking about him at shortstop, which, you know, speaks to his versatility. Anderson Tejeda is probably the long term answer there at shortstop. But, you know, and yet another one of these, uh, you know, cases we're seeing all over the place of a guy who lost all of the developmental time in the minors last year. So we have to see what that does to his timetable. Uh, you know, Nick Solak can sort of play everywhere, but we've got him pushing a rough, rough a door off of second base more than being a factor in the shortstop case. So it, it, yeah, it does seem like it's k- kinder of until Tejeda is ready.
0: One of the most important regular features at BaseballHQ.com, Ray, especially in the run-up to draft season, is facts and flukes. Uh, We call it performance validation. Our analysts look at five players in every article, and there's two or three of them a week. But before we talk about particular players, what do we mean when we say we're validating performance? So... Everything we do at
3: HQ is really based on what Ron Chandler has called for 20 plus years component skills analysis. So it's really you know, sort of pulling apart a player's skill set into its component elements and trying to determine how those component elements may or may not differ from... The sort of top-level counting stats we see. So it's not about how many home runs you hit. It's a combination of how often you make contact, how often you make contact in the air, and then what your raw power numbers say you you should get for results based on the number of balls you hit in the air. Uh, same thing. Batting average is about contact and ground balls, line drives, and fly ball distribution. And we're trying. So we try to filter out the noise metrics. Uh, you know, for batters, you know. Batting average and balls in play for pitchers, hit you know Babbitt again and strand rate and home run per fly and you know some of the things that cause cause noise in these metrics and try to get to sort of a, a a true skills level understanding of what a player is because we our belief over time is that the player's performance will regress to their true skill level.
0: And speaking of regression, often misunderstood to mean getting worse. Um, regression works both ways. Validation works both ways. Uh, sometimes you're validating an exceptional performance and saying it was, it was good. Sometimes you're validating an exceptional performance and saying it wasn't justified. And sometimes you're looking at a poor performance and assessing whether that was real or not real. Uh, let's look at a recent example from Baseball HQ, a uh, White Sox outfielder. Eloy Jimenez put together an excellent 2020 campaign, uh, 296, I think 14 home runs in that short season. Fantasy managers seem to be bidding a, a repeat performance. His ADP, I think, is 37 in NFPC drafts. Analyst Brian Rudd looked at Eloy Jimenez. What did he find out? Yeah, Brian did a nice
3: takedown here, you know, sort of a classic example of what we were just talking about. You know, Jimenez, since he arrived in the majors, has really, you know, sort of instantly established himself as a uh, as an elite power source. And Brian sort of went under the hood to take a look at what components drive that. And it's a, it's an interesting portfolio because he's got you know a couple of at least yellow flags that really. Don't seem to hold him back that much. He, he first of all, he hits too many ground balls for what you want to see in a power hitter. Uh, you know, last year he was just over fifty percent of the time hitting the ball on the ground, and we know balls hit on the ground never go over the fence, so that seems like a bad thing. But uh, you know, he compensates for that by uh, by getting a nice home run per fly ball rate that he's sort of established as a skill. And the, the sort of newer stat cast metrics validate that high home run per fly. He's got a really nice barrel percentage that isn't the top 5% of uh, stat cast metrics. And also his hard to hit rate is off the charts. So you know we've got a metric for expected home runs that we have at a baseball forecaster and are Sort of writing the code right now to get it on the website, and it focuses on those two things. It's basically exit velocity and barrels, trying to get to you know sort of a how many home runs you deserved, and you know in both of the components of that, Eloy does really really well.
0: Yes, and he does well on just the basic hard hit metric over fifty five percent, I think the last time I looked, and. I checked his minor league record, Ray, and he hit a lot of ground balls in the minors, too, and a lot of home runs, so maybe he's one of those guys who just hits the hell out of the ball, and, and any time he gets it uh, up in the air, there's a chance it's going to clear a fence somewhere.
3: That's exactly right, and the other thing about it, from a raw counting stat perspective, is for a slugger, he he makes contact at decent rate rate of the time. You know, he was at seventy four percent last year, so you know, roughly three times out of four, he's not striking out. And when you hit the ball. Hard as often as he does, the best thing you can do is put bat on ball often enough. And this isn't a case where you've you know we've got so many other sluggers whose um, contact rate you know is somewhere in the 60s or mid 60s. That's that used to be anathema to us, but that's become more and more common. But Jimenez resides at a uh, at a higher baseline than that, which in terms of you know which just means more fl- more balls in play, and even if not as many of them are fly balls as we like, it means more good things happening in the aggregate.
0: Yes, and one of those good things, as Brian Rudd points out in this analysis, is he's a pretty good batting average asset in fantasy terms. Uh, 296 last year in the short season, 267 the year before that. Hitting a lot of ground balls generates very few home runs, as you suggest, but it also generates more hits. You know, More ground balls are likely to find holes and find their way through and create all kinds of problems. So in addition to the home run potential... Just putting the ball into play creates runs and RBI opportunities. And maybe Eloy Jimenez has a, a little bit of a secret batting average spice.
3: Yeah, it does give him a higher batting average floor between the contact and the ground balls. You know, obviously, you you get some other, there's another class of power hitter who, you know, have the inverse ground ball, line drive, fly ball rate. They're hitting more than half the balls on the air, but. They don't have the, they don't hit them as hard as often as Eloy does. And as a result, you end up with the guy who hits, you know, 300 cans of corn a year, right? And right. there's almost, you know, there's just no way to, you know, keep your batting average up in that scenario because fly balls that don't go over the fence end up being base hits a very small percentage of the time. So that's, that's the sort of profile of the classic, you know, 220 power hitter, um, but this is a, um, you know, he was the other way, you know, he he uses those ground balls and those aggregate balls in play to keep his batting average up and fly balls in general are bad for batting average. But when he hits a fly ball, it goes over the fence, a, you know, fairly high percentage of the time, which, you know, <laughs> is exactly what you want. So, yeah, it's a, you know, he, it's a true four category skill set here. He doesn't run, so it's not five, but, you know, he's sort of helping you in all four in all four of the other categories.
0: You know who he reminds me of and, and not at the same level, but uh, Manny Ramirez used to be like this, you know, not the fastest guy in the world and a, and a true power hitter, but he got a lot of hits just by bashing the ball so hard that they couldn't catch it. You know, li- a lot of line drives too, but he, he poked a lot of balls through the uh, through the infield. Well, poked is the wrong word, drove a lot of balls through the infield and ended up being a very good average hitter as well.
3: Yeah, that's a great comp, actually. I've actually used that one at
0: least once that I I can remember. Brian Rudd also looked at Seattle starting pitcher Yusei Kikuchi, who has, to be charitable, struggled the first two seasons in the majors. ERA's over five in both of them. Is there any reason for optimism here? Yeah, in fact, not only is there a reason for optimism, but he's one of my favorite end game
3: targets this year because there are some things going on in the skill set that didn't show up in ER in his ERA in 2020, or for that matter, 2019, and this is a case where the surface stats are, are telling one story, but the skills are telling another, which is a which is a place where I love to take some profit. Uh, sort of the highlight, the highlighter, the headline with Kikuchi is after a really rough 2019 transition to. Uh, to, to the majors coming over from Japan, he spiked his velocity last year, which is, you know, A, sort of unusual and B, pretty exciting for somebody who had a, what looked like a very pedestrian hittable skill set. He threw his, threw another two and a half miles an hour on his fastball velocity. And, you know, as a result, when that happens, you start getting more swing and miss, you know, he get, getting more strikeouts, more swinging strikes. And then he, off of the fastball, he, he, tickered with his pitch mix, threw away his curveball, which got smacked around. And, you know, it's always a good idea if you don't add a new pitch to at least, you know, ditch your old pitch, your worst pitch. And that's what he did. So a better fastball and removing his curveball really sort of reinvented him last year in terms of skills. But his ERA stayed up in the low fives due to some misfortune, which really is just keeping his price down this year and making him a super, a super target in my book.
0: Brian Rudd also pointed out that uh, keeping the ball on the ground helped limit the home runs. He gave up very few barrels and very few uh, hard hit balls and still managed to find his way to a five plus ERA. So if he's squaring away some of those things, I think a big problem here that Brian mentioned, though, Ray, is walks.
3: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, but some of that might be, you know, there's so much, we've talked about it already a couple of times this year, but there's so much to untangle about. The short season last year, and you think about the way you know. Here's Kikuchi with just one more example: a guy who you know made some significant changes to its to his pitch mix. You know, added velocity to his fastball, and only had two months to sort of consolidate those skills. And you know, we would have loved to have seen what he would have done with another four months as he sort of you know gained control of control literally of his arsenal. Would he have you know started to dial down the walks? Uh, or would he, or on the flip side, would he have started getting better results and maybe he wouldn't have ended the year with the five plus ERA and he'd be on more breakout lists this year instead of more, you know, sort of hidden, hidden profit end game lists here. If he had hung up uh you know, a second half of the season that we never saw with a sub four ERA or something like that. So yeah, there's sure there's risk still, but uh, you know, uh, I'm betting that over time, the the gains he made last year are going to make their way into his uh, ERA and WHIP.
0: And Facts and Flukes analyst Eric Florimonti looked at Eloy Jimenez's teammate, Luis Robert, and says Robert's surface numbers look pretty good, suggesting maybe a 30-30 guy over a full season. But underneath, once again, the story is more complicated. What's uh, Eric Florimonte's concern here?
3: Yeah, I was writing something up for, about Robert last week, too, and I was leaning heavily on Eric's analysis, which I thought was uh, which I thought was spot on. It, it really this one is as much for me about cost and about what we were just talking about with that, um, you know, th- th- that short sample for 2020. You know, Robert was a highly touted. Uh, you know, rookie last year started out an opening day in center field and came out like gangbusters, but then cooled off. And, you know, I think he hit sub 200 in September or something like that. And, you know, for a for a rookie, that's a normal, you know, come out hot, the league adjusts to you, pitchers find some holes in your swing, they start getting you out for a while, and then you've got to make counter adjustments. And, Robert probably will make those counter adjustments over time, but we didn't get to see it last year. We didn't get to see sort of step three in the chess match between hitter and pitcher. And that brings me back to the price here where his ADP last year was... Somewhere, I mean, it was pretty high for a rookie. It was somewhere around round six or round seven. He's going at round three now. His ADP is in the 30s. And I know he sort of filled the stat sheet in the aggregate in those 60 games last year. But given that he ended cold, I'm not sure I, that he earned that kind of price increase from where he was a year ago. So I'm probably not going to end up owning much of him, even though it is a broad base of skills with both some risk and some reward to it.
0: I thought so, too, in the uh, really slow close to the short season. He batted 160, I think, something like that. It's uh, certainly a cause for concern because the the suspicion is that pitchers, as you said, found some way to get him out. And if they found Mm -hmm. some way to get him out for the last part of last season, they're going to maintain that same approach and get him out lots this season as well. We'll have to see if he can adjust back, I guess, Another preseason must-read at Baseball HQ are the Buyers' Guides columns. We have them for hitters, starting pitchers, and relievers. And Doug Dennis, one of our favorite people, covers the bullpens, and he recently dove into the situations for a number of teams. Let's start here, Ray, with Detroit, the Tigers' 2020 opening day closer. Joe Jimenez was so bad, they ended up the year with Brian Garcia, who's not exactly going to make anybody forget Dennis Eckersley either. Uh, What does Doug say about the Tigers' bullpen in 2021?
3: Yeah, it's not exactly uh, stocked to the brim with uh, closer worthy skill sets, right? So it's uh, you know he's reading some he's reading some muddy leaves here, and you know and poor Doug, this bullpen job seems to just get harder and harder every year. It's uh, you know the closer marketplace is just so fractured these days we've been talking about it for years and now it's really you know it, it, the, the work of people like Doug who are trying to uh, you know tease out how these bullpens are going to play out just seems like it gets harder all the time uh, in this particular one yeah Garcia ended up with the gig last September but you you almost his skills are so bad you just have to sort of just d- dismiss him out of hand uh, Doug comes back to Joe Jimenez who got demoted from the closer role last summer but then once he got demoted his last four or six weeks in the short season were were actually quite good. I think he threw 10 or 12 innings of one-run ball with a walk in 12 Ks or something like that that uh and, and you know that, that seems like it should be enough to overcome Garcia but you know it, that's not a ringing endorsement of him and as he's in particular got some problems with the Home run ball, which are, you know, sort of uh, a poison pill for closers. So, looking even a little bit deeper, you know, Doug also throws some votes toward Gregory Soto, who's got a sort of a safer, more well rounded skill set without sort of the pitfalls of either Garcia in general or Jimenez with the home run r- rate. And, you know, his overall point is that both Jimenez and Soto come super cheap in ADP right now. They're both south of, uh, you know, Soto's in the 500s somewhere and Jimenez is in the 600s so uh you know, there's some profit opportunity with both of them if you either get even a you know a slice of the closer gig then you know at that virtually free acquisition cost there's profit
0: there and as you said uh, Gregory Soto a couple of things to worry about uh, Doug pointed the platoon splits and uh, the walks and stuff but at 620 ADP and if your league runs that deep, what the heck? You know, at, at that point, you're really throwing a lot of darts anyways. Uh, before we go, Ray, I wanted to ask you about a couple of things that you wrote uh, recently. Uh, the GM's office column, you wrote a very interesting thing about how you were auditing and adjusting HQ projections in real time based on what you were doing at, a, at an Experts League draft. Uh, where did you get that idea
3: yeah, so that's one thing I like to sort of do—not in real time, but sort of off to the side, especially in the early drafts in the off season, is to try to, you know, when I see somebody I want or I see a, a, I'm going to draft, and I see I see another guy take somebody who wasn't even you know on sort of the top of my draft board yet, or was you know reaching way down, way down my roto lab list to find a guy who got picked. I'm like, well, there's somebody who has a very different opinion than we do, and you know. If I'm drafting with, uh, you know, just a you know randomly put together NFBC draft, it's always possible that you know I'm drafting with somebody who's just using a different source or is taking a different approach to team construction. And I generally don't get too wrapped up in it. But in this particular draft, it was um, an industry draft of guys who general- who speak at First Pitch Arizona for us, and Greg Ambrosius at the NFBC sort of hosts this friendly little draft competition every year. And given that I sort of knew and have respect for everybody in the room, in terms of, you know, some using our sources, some using other sources, but all, you know, using sound methodology, I figured it was a good time to sort of pay more attention to any time when I saw a pick that was sort of way far afield from what our values were telling me and a chance to sort of take a deeper dive and in some cases clean up our projections or in some cases just revalidate that the reason the guy was on my radar screen at the
0: time is still valid or what have you. So that was sort of the mindset. And give us an example of a player where you thought this is an adjustment that I need to look at at least.
3: Yeah. Charlie Blackman was a good one. I I, I sort of knew that was going to happen going in. Uh, I've seen in several drafts that um, we're valuing Blackman quite a bit higher than the market, you know, by our projection, in Rotolab based on HQ projections when I was going through this draft was Blackman was something like 28 or $29, which should have been a third, maybe even late second round pick. Right. But he went in this draft in round seven, uh, which was interesting because um, there were three or four people in the draft. Doug Dennis was in the draft from HQ. We were just talking about Doug's bullpen work. But Doug was in this draft. Ryan Bloomfield from HQ was in this draft. Uh, Steve Gardner from USA Today was in this draft. And I know he tends to use our projections. And of course, I was in the draft. So four out of the 15 people were using HQ projections. Those four people between Round three, where Blackman became the sort of top-valued guy on the board, and round seven, where he finally got taken, we probably passed on Blackman among the four of us 12 times in there. So, it, it, which kind of spoke said to me that, okay, clearly none of the four of us believe this projection either. So, you know what? Maybe I should go back and take a closer look at it because none of us are willing to sort of buy into what the, uh, what the system is telling us. And I took a closer look, and it's really... It, you know, I think there's some of it with uh, some of it seems to be just devaluing Colorado with the Arenado trade and that sort of thing. Since so Blackman is old and then certainly in the decline phase of his career, and you worry about the decline just ramping up. And we were probably over projecting the playing time a little bit. So my what what I did f- as an outcome of my projection audit here was knock down Blackman's at bats by five or ten percent, which still left him valued a little bit higher than where he got taken in this draft, but it closed the gap a little bit. So it might just be that some of this is a case where Blackman's just a boring, underappreciated, undervalued veteran. You know, that's sort of a classic pocket of profit in these drafts, but the gap was so big that I ended up
0: narrowing it a little bit. I was going to say, old, boring veterans have built the foundations of a lot of winning fantasy baseball teams, that's for sure
3: yeah i mean you know to take it back to you know what we were talking about a little bit earlier you know by valuation there's you know we have black men projected above Louis robert and robert goes you know four rounds earlier and if you look at their skill sets you know there's you know there's not a lot of justification for that but you know one's a boring veteran and one's the sexy kid right
0: yeah that and you know when you go into a draft we all like to think that we're being these hyper rational super focused uh, analysts of baseball and uh, and applying a lot of acumen in the sport but it's an emotional thing too at the table sometimes especially in auctions not so much in in drafts but in auctions Luis Roberts name comes out and you know you go on tilt as the poker players say oh I gotta have him and the bidding's so comfortable here and then you get into the auction and you can't not say uh, raise another dollar. That's right. Robert's name comes out and you have 13
3: backs at the table all straighten up, right?
0: Right. <laughs> exactly right. Finally, Ray, Baseball HQ has announced, uh, because First Pitch Florida, the uh, annual gathering down in the Sunshine State is not going to be available because of COVID restrictions and travel restrictions and just plain common sense. But Baseball HQ is having the event anyway, but they're doing it online.
3: Yeah, it's really, you know, we lost first pitch Arizona to the pandemic. And, you know, thinking back a year ago, we, you know, we did the first pitch Florida, the inaugural edition, you know, right before everything broke, broke free. I remember a lot of chatter while we were down there among people like, Hey, you're going to wear a mask on the plane on the way home. You know, what do you think about that? You know, we were, we were all so dumb and naive. Right. And then it yeah. was like, you know, it was literally like 10 days before the world stopped, at least here in the, uh, in the Northeast U S and it's kind of, it's even harder to believe that, you know, we've gone. A, we've got a full trip around the sun and we have to cancel again but here we are so uh we're taking the event uh sort of part and parcel all the things we loved about it last year and as much as we can just moving it online we're gonna build the program around you know around the weekend of the labor drafts we'll have a couple of the labor drafts available you know occurring and able to be followed along we'll do all sorts of um, you know, panel sessions and discussions about, you know, how to figure out how to use all the data from the great 2020 season, what it means for 2021. 20 we'll do some fat fluke type type stuff. You know, if you've been to first Bit Florida or Arizona before, the program will look very, very similar to what it was. And we're, you know, we're going to try to steer into this you know virtual setting zoom thing we're hoping to even you know we can't go to a ball game which obviously is a huge part of what we do in Arizona and Florida but we're all hoping to you know literally have a watch party for a game that's on MLB network on Saturday afternoon or something we'll find the find a spring training game and we'll get some of uh some of our friends in the industry to sort of comment or, you know, hold court on zoom while we all watch it together and talk about who's up or, you know, the, the position battle that we're watching or what have you. And it's going to look very much like the immersive first pitch weekends that we've all come to love in person. We're just going to have to sit here and do it on zoom one more time before we all, uh, all things, considered hopefully we get back to doing it live in Arizona this fall but we're going to do it uh we're going to do this one on Zoom
0: and is there going to be a virtual fire pit that's what I want to know you know, I, you joke,
3: but I have we've those words have come up. The term virtual fire pit has been uh, has been discussed. We'll see how we can replicate that. The hard part's replicating the beverages. It's going to be the uh, bring your own beverages to the virtual fire pit. I think.
0: Yeah. Well, for me, that's the easy part. It's the technology that uh, baffles me. Uh, how can listeners find out more about registration, checking out the schedule, those kinds of things?
3: Yeah. So the schedule is posted online. Uh, We've got an early bird rate going on right now. It is, you know, if you're somebody who has come to Arizona or Florida for the live events before or is interested in doing that, it's a deal you can't beat. Uh, The early bird rate for this one is $59, but it includes a $50 credit toward Registration for one of those future live events in the next year, so you get the uh, you get the virtual weekend and the the taste of the taste of the event for a net nine dollars if you register by Monday, and then um, then we'll do it in person in six months or a year. So uh, you kind of can't beat that. And uh, the there's a the promo for the event is in the uh, number one spot in our slideshow on the homepage right now, so you can't miss it if you go to baseballhq.com. And if you click there, you can see the uh, you can see the schedule. Uh, we're starting to populate some list of speakers and that sort of thing. Uh, we'll have some of those announced this weekend, so you, you just can get a really, fo- really good flavor for what we're trying to put together at least.
0: Maybe we could do a live HQ radio.
3: Hey, absolutely.
0: We'll try anything once. Everybody's <laughs> flying uh, flying a little bit on, uh, on imagination at this point, as many people are. It's March 5th through 7th. That's First Pitch Florida Online. Check it out, as Ray said, at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll be watching the news for another week and catch up with you again. Catch you next week, PD. Ray Murphy is a Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager. Next up, it's our HQ Spotlight, where we'll talk some baseball with one of the staff analysts and writers at Baseball HQ, in this case, the other co-GM at BaseballHQ.com. It's Brent Hershey coming to the plate in just a second. Right now, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Alain Leonardis looks at rosters of all five teams in the National League East, looking at the Philly bullpen and the outfields in Washington and Atlanta. In NFBC coverage, analyst Brant Chesser looks at strategies for best ball and cut line leagues. And in the speculator, Ryan Bloomfield follows up his upside list for hitters with an upside list for pitchers, including Drew Smiley, Tyler Duffy, and many more. And those are just three articles among dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in Matthew Cederholm's column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections. They're updated every day. And during the season, there are daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. You get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business.
1: Baseball HQ Radio. (laughs)
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. Time now for our HQ Spotlight, where we introduce one of the staff analysts and writers at Baseball HQ. And it's my pleasure to welcome Brent Hershey, the co general manager at baseballhq.com. Brent, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio.
4: Hey, Patrick, how are you today?
0: I'm doing fine. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much for joining uh, our spotlight on Baseball HQ staff. And uh, let's start with uh, finding out to, uh, you're the co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com. What does that mean exactly?
4: Ray Murphy and I uh, kind of split the day-to-day operations of the site. And we. Uh, I'm primarily responsible for the content areas, the working with the writers and getting all the articles up. And uh, Ray is a little bit more the numbers guy. Handles the projections, the uh, database, working with the tech team that we have to keep that end of it running. It's a good team, and I think we both have uh, unique skill sets that mesh well for the overall site.
0: And how did you get to this lofty perch in uh, fantasy baseball media?
4: <laughs> lofty perch. <laughs> well, I started uh, as a freelancer for Ron at this site in 1998. I had been a subscriber, uh, which actually a lot of our writers, our current writers, have been subscribers over the years. And that just uh, morphed. I did uh, many different types of columns as I was in school and graduate school and uh, working uh, like a lot of us, uh, just kind of doing it on the side. Around January in 2011, I came on sort of as part time editor or editorial help for uh with ron and did some work trying to uh put together some standard practices for the for the writers so that the columns read similarly and we're all using the same language uh, so to speak for the most part uh and then around a couple years later in april 2013 uh is when it became full-time around that time ron was backing away from the day-to-day and ray and i have taken over since then we're uh Still at it, thankfully, and uh, it's a uh, fun and challenging position.
0: I bet it is, uh, and you're doing a great job of it. Now, uh, in addition to your administrative work as an editor, you also are still doing some writing for the site, uh, particularly in the scouting area. You're one of the members of the BaseballHQ.com scouting team looking at minor league players. Uh, how did that come about, and uh, what do you like about it?
4: That came about in the uh, around the time when I was hired part-time, I had done some work for Baseball Info Solutions kind of as a stringer at a local minor league park here at uh, at Trenton, which is basically keeping a detailed scorecard. And then after the game's kind of entering it into their database for their minor league data that they use and disperse for other places. It was at that point that I uh, learned a lot about kind of watching the game with the scout's eye sort of behind home plate And became more interested in just how these players develop from single A and and that part was double A on up through the majors. And then certainly thinking about it from a fantasy perspective, how that can be advantageous to kind of know who those good players we project will be, especially for those in, you know, deeper leagues that have farm systems and that kind of thing. So that became a, yeah, that became sort of a writing focus of interest for me, how these players develop, uh, the learning that always goes on. In uh, how some of these players that you see do some great things in Double A, get to the majors and and contribute a lot, and some for various reasons fizzle out. So it's a it's an interesting part of what I do, and something that's very enjoyable for sure.
0: Well, you also uh, contribute as a writer to the site by sharing with Ray Murphy, the general manager's office column, you guys back and forth. I don't know if you're on a fixed, you do it one week, I'll do the the other kind of uh, schedule. But in any event, you wrote a column recently in the GM's office, and it was called the 2021 preseason plan. And basically, you walked readers through the plans for the site for 2021 what they can expect to to find there and especially how they can benefit from using it Uh, and I'd like to talk with you about that too. Uh, Let's start with the first category that you offered which is Major League News and Fantasy Impact. There's uh, two playing time columns are produced underneath that overall title uh, starting with playing time today.
4: Yeah our playing time today column is basically our our kind of news spin column, where we take the the news that happens, whether it's a free agent signing or a trade or an in-season injury, and then kind of let our readers know how that affects both the players that are the uh, initial focus of that news, say the free agent signing, as well as some of the players not directly involved in that signing, for instance, but who might get less innings pitched or less innings bats because of this new player coming in. So we use we have our writers each assigned to a major league team. And uh, when some of the piece of news comes through that affects their team, they're the ones adjusting the playing time. And so they write up a quick note about how that's going to affect kind of the depth chart, as well as some quick hit kind of characteristics of the players affected and how we see their fortunes kind of going forward.
0: In addition to playing time today, there's playing time tomorrow, which takes a bit broader and longer of a view.
4: We assign those by divisions. And in each column, the writer has several paragraphs and talks about each team. But in that case, they're looking at playing time from the broader sort of 10,000 foot team view. And we ask them to kind of look a step or two ahead also. So, if a certain player is struggling as a second baseman, a young player maybe not hitting, and even before kind of any sort of change is made, we hope that the playing time tomorrow writer would have said, you know, this player gets uh, demoted or uh, benched. Here's the two, or here's the one or two players that will likely fill in, and this is how we think we'll do because of that. And so, the whole idea is kind of from the team level. Addressing managerial tendencies, looking for potential injuries, you know, if there's a a downtick in player performance, but then importantly, kind of what that uh, kind of pushing that forward, like what what that would mean if that would happen as far as player movement. So try to give an edge to our subscribers as to kind of what to look for. So when, if and when it does happen, they're ready to move or maybe have moved already on the players that we're talking about.
0: The next general category of columns at BaseballHQ.com, player performance. And here on the show, uh, Ray and Nick and I talk a lot about facts and flukes, which is called performance validation. And I've asked Ray what performance validation is. Basically, you're looking at uh, performances and deciding whether the underlying skills justify them. The other one is the buyer's guides. And the buyer's guides have a special role to play in uh, evaluating player performance. How does that work?
4: Yeah, so we have uh, three separate buyers guides: starting pitchers, relief pitchers, and then hitters, just broadly. And what uh, Stephen Nickrand, who does uh, two of those, and Doug Dennis, who handles the bullpens, do is really look at just within that pool of players who is performing above or below what we expect, and. It's a little different than in, in Fact and in Fluke, which is player-specific. We ask the guys to kind of dig into a specific player. Where here, uh, we're looking at all the pitchers and, and who has had a good past month in skills that might be uh, undervalued because the surface stats are uh, worse than what we expect. That skills-based buyer's guide is is where we look at these groups of players, these wide groups of players in one pool.
0: And those come out uh, starting February 15th, I think. Uh, starters, Saturdays, relievers, Sundays, batters on Mondays. And this is really valuable stuff when you're starting to put your draft list together because, of course, we all want to know uh, in, those, in those player pools who's rising, who's falling, who's got a chance to overperform, underperform, those kind of things.
4: We also set that up sort of in season two, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, to help many leagues that kind of do transactions uh, either Sunday or Monday to kind of give them the latest information we can that may affect uh, the different pickups that they're making for those uh, weekly transaction links.
0: There's a bit of a overlap between the buyer's guides and the market pulse, which is one of two columns that comes under player valuation. The market pulse, uh, tell us about that. And it's, as I said, the overlap with the buyer's guides.
4: The market pulse uh, is something that this time of year, the writer Matt Cedarholm goes position by position and really compares our HQ projected value with the wider kind of market value so to speak both where we are higher and where we are lower than kind of the accepted market value is what he highlights with with the idea of of giving people another slice of information to kind of take into their draft rooms or their draft days to to give them a you know just just another idea of how long they might be able to wait on a player here or not when we get to the regular season uh, market pulse is written by brad coleman and uh, in that case it is more of a kind of a, a weekly faab column and you're right similar to some of the buyers' guides it's uh, it's trying to identify pools of players that whose fortunes may change in the in the short term. what's helpful about that once we get in season is there are several levels of uh, player penetration pools so here's you know here's a list of guys to consider for shallow leagues here's a list of guys to consider for deeper leagues and such in ways that just tweak it a, a bit to give us a little more information about who who could be at the beginning of that hot streak that we all uh, hope to acquire midseason.
0: Well, I'd ask you about the Speculator column, but we had Ryan Bloomfield, its author, on last week. He pretty much walked us through the 20% play versus the 80% play. That is, the nuts and bolts of Baseball HQ were going the other way. So you mentioned Brad Coleman, and he also writes a, a column called Keepers. Uh, devoted to finding long-term values for people who play Dynasty and Keeper formats. That's part of the gaming and strategy uh, section. And there's also strategy articles, Brent, that discuss the different game formats other than the standard sort of rotisserie category style games.
4: We're always trying to kind of, with our player evaluations anyway, make them broad enough because it, that anyone playing any sorts of game uh, can use. That doesn't mean we don't go into detail about what the player's doing, but it's also a the idea of here's how we think the player is going to uh, perform over the next batch of time, and you know, you as a as a fantasy manager, you know, you know your league and you know your uh, rules. And uh, we hope that our information helps you make those smart decisions. So that's that's one way of looking at it. But then we also do want to cover strategy aspects of the of these different game formats uh, as much as you know as much as we can. So we do have you know for instance a, a writer or two that focuses on just head to head play and strategies you may consider for that. We had a column from a couple of columns from Bob Berger about a month ago on some NFBC strategies that he put together with regards to pitching heavy or hitting heavy teams and how they finished for him. And we have uh, guys that are that are experienced in points leagues or in score sheet or simulation leagues, also contributing just kind of nuggets of information. Much less, you know, not as much about player evaluation. But more about the gaming format evaluation, how you can oftentimes, how you can use our Baseball HQ tools to apply to this uh, one specific game format. And there are always interesting articles. We have a lot of them uh, running during this sort of preseason draft season because everyone's obviously picking their teams. And there's there's some in-season also, but this time here, the next uh, six weeks or so is when... We get the heaviest of those gaming articles, which are, uh, are always very insightful.
0: Yeah, when I was making my way up through the ranks at Baseball HQ, switching every couple of years to a different thing, I, I think I've written every particular one of these things that we've been talking about. But I really enjoyed writing the Rotisserie Gaming Strategy because it allowed me to really dig into and explain to, to readers the thinking behind concepts like inflation, which now everybody uh, uses or and many people think they understand, but don't actually, and they should reread some of those articles, but also, you know, just the draft strategy in general, behavioral economics started coming out on Ron Chandler's, um, interest. And, and he, he asked some of us to participate in that and, and come up with ideas re- regarding that. So it's, a uh, the, the strategy stuff is fun to talk about. Uh, everybody talks about what the players are going to be worth and should you take Francisco Lindor in the second round or the third round or whatever the case might be. And, and that's all well and good, but the, uh, but the strategy is uh, to me is where all the fun in the game is. Uh, before I let you go, Brent, I mentioned earlier that you are one of the members of the Baseball HQ Scouting Team covering the minors. you got to tell us a little bit about what the minor league coverage looks like preseason and in-season.
4: Our main uh, focus in in starting in late uh, November or so through the first week of January is what we, what we term our organizational reports, which are basically our top 15 prospects for each uh, major league team. And that obviously is a bit more challenging this year, given that there was no minor league season uh, last year. But our team did a great job of mining different contacts that we could find and get as much information as we could about both uh, minor league players that were uh, at the alternative sites, as well as, as the fall instructional league. And so we put that together and, and that culminates always in kind of our HQ 100, our top uh, prospect list, which came out early January. And since then, then we take, and then we kind of refocus and go position by position and look at the top prospects in each position both looking at short-term value for this year, as well as, as more long-term value. And so we uh, actually run have been running those for several weeks and, and, we'll, and kind of going around the diamond there. And they coordinate with the same uh, position that the market pulse column uh, that we talked about uh, comes out each day. So you get a good, uh, each week, excuse me, so that uh, those are you know uh, correlated on the same day. But we're looking forward to certainly. Hopefully, it sounds like the minor league season will be a bit delayed uh, because of the pandemic this year. But we hope to get back uh, at the ballparks come May and June and uh, continue to provide some of that scouting information, the things that we see on the field as well as uh, different news and statistics that come across. So uh, we're—I know all of us on the minor league team are itching to get uh, to get back into that and get some real results after uh, an entire year off.
0: And we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that during the season, one of the most valuable features at BaseballHQ.com, in my opinion, is the daily call-ups reports. Every time a prospect gets called up, bang there's a there's a, a little nugget of information about him part of it's taken from the organization reports in the previous commentaries but it's also updated to reflect whether the player has moved up a league or has done well at a couple of levels or poorly at a couple of levels and basically what you can expect and we should also say that when we're talking about minor league coverage at baseballhq.com it's all with a fantasy perspective it's not uh, prospect coverage like you get in most other places where they're, look, they're looking at how valuable is this guy in a on-the-field, real baseball sense, including defense, which in most formats of fantasy baseball doesn't count.
4: Yeah, that's that's for sure. Uh, that's a really good point you bring up. I mean, it's something that we uh, all, all year, whether we're doing our organizational reports in the fall or our top 100 list, uh, in January. And then as you say, throughout the year with the call-ups and, and, uh, other places, the, the definite, uh, kind of feature of what we bring to that space, um, is that it's, it, it's all fantasy focused. I mean, I like to think of it as like, you know, <clears throat> you can get that information, you can get, you know, prospect information from other places. Um, but many times it is on a more of a quote unquote real, uh, or in, in real life kind of ranking or evaluation uh, and kind of then that leaves you to do the translation as to how that's going to apply to fantasy. But when when for our products, whether it's the books or the or our uh, top lists or our scouting reports in season and all of that, uh, we're always thinking we're always seeing it through the fantasy baseball lens like how how valuable do we think this player is going to be uh once he hits the majors from a fantasy perspective how's he gonna uh affect uh you know what kind of statistics are he gonna is he gonna produce uh what kind of player will he be um that uh with regards to uh your fantasy team and so uh that's something that that uh we're kind of proud of and kind of make known feel like it's a unique uh unique uh, n- unique, uh place uh, that we have in the uh among among the many choices of uh, where to get good uh, prospect information
0: and i have to note that in your column you said uh this This is just the formal articles and doesn't mention things like the award-winning Baseball HQ Radio podcast. So thank you for that as well. Uh, Brent Hershey, it's been very interesting. It's a tremendous site. I do appreciate all the work that you and Ray do to keep everything running smoothly behind the scenes, although I get the feeling sometimes it's like a duck. It looks very placid on the top, but paddling like hell underneath. Uh, Thanks very much (laughs) for joining us, and we'll talk to you again during the season.
4: I got to go get paddling. Thanks.
0: Brent Hershey's co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com. And hey, before we roll ahead, I want to let you know about our next show, another Two Tow Tuesday edition. And what a dynamic duo. We open with Ron Chandler, the Grand Master, and then follow up with Rob Silver, a former NFBC overall champion and a top-rate fantasy analyst. That'll be next Tuesday here on Baseball HQ Radio. But coming up next on this show, we have our regular HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, and frequent flyer. Next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hoki Wilson still hoping to win it for New York.
4: Three and two, the count,
0: and the pitch by Stanley, and a ground ball.
2: Quickly, it is a better ball. Gets by Buckner. Downy's third night. The Mets will
1: win the ball game. The Mets win. They win. Baseball HQ
2: Radio.
0: Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular commentaries. The frequent flyer is coming up next and leading off, it's our minor league minute. And here with a look at Pittsburgh third baseman Kibrian Hayes is Baseball HQ minor league's analyst Rob Gordon.
1: The Pittsburgh Pirates have been rebuilding for what seems like forever. And this offseason, that trend continued with the trades of Josh Bell to the Washington Nationals and Jamison Tyone to the New York Yankees. While beleaguered Pirates fans don't have much to look forward to in 2021, they do have at least one bright spot in third baseman Cabrian Hayes. Hayes was the Pirates' first-round pick in 2015 and has explosive offensive potential. He had a blistering MLB debut, slashing 376 with a 442 on on-base percentage and a 682 slugging percentage with 7 doubles, 2 triples, and 5 home runs in 85 at-bats. While he isn't likely to produce at that level over the course of an entire season, he does have the tools to be an impact middle order hitter. At the plate, Hayes, who is the son of former major leaguer Charlie Hayes, uses a quick bat in an all-fields approach and makes consistent hard contact. The biggest improvement in 2020 was the uptick in power, as Hayes had never slugged over 450 in any season in the minors. If that uptick in power continues in 2021, then the sky's the limit. As good as Hayes could be offensively, he's even better on defense where he's considered elite, with some scouts throwing out 70 or even 75 grades for his defense and projecting him as a future goal glover. That prowess on defense and the fact that the Pirates don't have any other impact offensive players means they are likely to stick with him in 2021 even if he gets off to a slow start at the plate. As a result, the Pirates' Brian Hayes should be considered the frontrunner for the 2021 Rookie of the Year Award in the National League and makes an excellent target in NL-only formats. Just don't break the bank chasing those 2020 stats. As we gear up for the 2021 season and the start of spring training, don't forget to check out our crack team of minor league analysts and our extensive minor league coverage at BaseballHQ.com. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon.
0: Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ Scouting Team and has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and have the potential to get enough playing time in production to make them worth considering a spot on your roster here with a look at Tampa left-handed starting pitcher Josh Fleming is baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky You could say that 24-year-old
5: Josh Fleming is a well-grounded pitcher, despite pitching in the 2020 World Series only a few months after his Major League debut. In fact, though a small sample size, Josh Fleming's spotless 5-0 record in five starts in the abbreviated 2020 regular season was further enhanced by his 2.78 ERA and his stellar 1.08 whip. Yet, according to the 2021 baseball forecaster, 24-year-old Josh Fleming is a fringy prospect that benefited from good luck. That's why Josh Fleming, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, perhaps even a fringy long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is available late in your draft. Heck, even the baseball forecaster advises you to take a flyer on Josh Fleming after your staff is full. Excellent advice. We love it. Digging deeper, something we'd love to do at baseballhq.com. Perhaps Josh Fleming's good luck, in the baseball forecaster's quote, can be attributed to his 250 batting average on balls and play in 2020, where the league average is 300, or what we refer to at baseballhq.com as a 30% hit rate. Certainly, there's reason to believe from a skills perspective that his good luck, or 25% hit rate, or two hundred fifty batting average on balls in play, or BABIP, will continue. Indeed, Josh Fleming relies heavily on his sinker and slider while occasionally mixing in his changeup. In fact, according to MLB's StatCast in 2020, Josh Fleming dropped his sinker 53% of the time and grooved his slider 29% of the time, while mixing his low 80s changeup about 15% of the time, plus a rare fastball or curve. In other words, Josh Fleming is inducing ground balls from his sinker or slider on a regular basis, or approximately 64% of the time, according to the tools available at BaseballHQ.com, which, according to BaseballHQ.com, generally leads to a lower ERA, but a potentially higher whip. Thus, if Josh Fleming is throwing his sinker-slider combo approximately 83% of the time, a ground ball rate of 64% makes complete sense. More importantly, the Tampa Bay Rays pitching staff, as a team, led the American League in ground-out-to-air-out ratios in 2019 and 2020. Hence, the ground ball trend is likely to continue in Tampa Bay this season, especially for Josh Fleming, perhaps leading to a lower batting average on balls in play, and thus a lower ERA, meaning the good luck is likely to continue in 2021. And the good luck will likely continue for you as well when you draft Tampa Bay Rays starting pitcher, Josh Fleming, as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 12th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number four of the 2021 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky. Of course, I also want to thank our HQ Spotlight guest for this News and Notes edition, Brent Hershey, the co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com. Brent's a tireless guy behind the scenes at BaseballHQ.com and a big reason it is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums and remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio wherever you catch your podcasts, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. Helps us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. Remember, back again on Tuesday with a 2 tow Tuesday edition featuring the grandmaster Ron Chandler and podcaster Rob Silver, former NFPC overall champ. It's Ron and Rob. It's a dandy doubleheader, a terrific twin bill, a powerhouse pairing. And it's on Tuesday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. You know it, it's Baseball HQ Radio and so long.